The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Now, 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 it's the Ellis Martin Report. If you stay tuned, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Is it strange that companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here? No way. They want you to know what's going on. Catch us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today on the program, I'll speak with Brad Thompson, CEO of Oncolytics Biotech, trading as ONCY on the NASDAQ and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics has developed a reovirus called Reolysin that attacks cancer tumors while leaving healthy cells alone. Ross Orr, president of Backtech Environmental, trading on the OTC as BCCEF and on the Canadian Stock Exchange's BAC, will discuss the company's proprietary bioleaching technology which remediates highly toxic tailings resulting from abandoned mining operation. And I'll speak with our friend David Morgan. We'll finish the show with Dudley Baker of CommonStockWarrants.com. And now the marijuana speculator. Let's begin the program. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brand Thompson, President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolysin, its proprietary formulation of the human reovirus, and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks very much. Now, if you wouldn't mind, give us a brief summary of the business of Oncolytics Biotech. Well, Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company solely focused on developing therapies for cancer. The technology that we're using is to use a live agent, in this case a virus, to treat a variety of different cancers. Sort of a leading edge new wave in, in oncology today to use viruses, and there's probably five or six different companies now looking at different viruses for the treatment of cancer. Now, there are so many different cancers, and we've certainly covered some of them in previous broadcasts, but I'd like to dedicate this particular broadcast based on a recent news release that the company has on pediatric cancer. How many children across North America and maybe across the world are afflicted with cancer each year that you're aware of? Well, there's probably between ten and 12,000 children in the United States every year under the age of 15 that come down with cancers. So if you extrapolate that to worldwide, that probably means around 50,000 children every year. So it's significant from perspective of the children involved, but children really don't get cancer that often. But the unfortunate part of childhood cancers is that they tend to be quite serious. So you don't tend to have that kind of benign, in-between kind of cancers that adults get. When children get cancer, it becomes a very serious issue. And we've actually made a lot of progress on survival rates. 40 years ago, the five-year survival rate was just a little over a half. So if you had a child, they had a very poor prognosis. That's over 80% now, five-year survival. But that still means, an example, with the United States, that you probably have close to 1,500 children every year in the United States dying of cancer. That's not an acceptable number, obviously. Now, as far as early de- 
detection if these children are so young? How do you detect specific kinds of cancer? Or does it depend on the cancer? It depends very much on the cancer. I mean, we have concentrations of cancers. There's quite a few leukemia, so you know, non-solid tumors type cancers that are bloodborne, and they're more difficult to detect early. You typically get them later, but that's one of the areas we've had the best success in. There's been great advances in treating childhood leukemias, which is marvelous. It was a death sentence before, and now it's not. Some of the other cancers are a little more difficult to detect. Sarcomas, which are uh, soft tissue or bony tumors, are more common in children, and they tend to be not detected early enough to have very simple therapies. And of course, the one that is most germane to oncolytics is brain cancers, and they tend to be detected actually fairly late. The external symptoms that you get with brain cancers usually only manifest themselves when the cancer is fairly advanced. That was going to be my question to you. When you're talking about a brain tumor or brain cancer, there's, I would imagine, very little early detection involved. And by the time you've diagnosed it, you've got to treat it. And perhaps it's stage two or stage three cancer. This is a very, very dicey area. So you're beginning, according to your latest news release, you're beginning at least a phase one study in pediatric patients with brain tumor. Can you lay that out for us and give us some kind of possible hope as to how this disease may be treated in the future using oncolytics technology? Well, children are an extra complication in cancer therapy because the agents that have been historically used attack rapidly growing cells in the body. Radiation, chemotherapy, they tend to be toxic to cells that just grow rapidly. And that's really all cancer is, a cluster of out-of-control cells growing. But when you think about a child, a child is all rapidly growing cells when they're young. I mean, the nervous system in a child it grows so quickly, it's hard to keep track of, I mean, as an example. So when you have tumors in the central nervous system, what do you do about that? I mean, are you going to irradiate that? I'm not very commonly know. Are you going to treat the child with chemotherapy? Well, no, because I mean, the toxicity associated with that is very difficult. It's very heartbreaking, honestly, when you get a child coming in with a brain tumor and because the tools that we normally use in adults just aren't really that applicable to the children. That's further complicated by the fact that a lot of the brain cancers in children are deep down in the brain, in the lower part, and that's the part of the brain that controls breathing and it controls all the autonomic functions. And surgery really isn't an option either. So you have these five to 10 year old children coming in with cancers. All the available tools just aren't there for you. And so the approach that we're taking with this particular cancer is to take two very safe therapies that don't rely on those mechanisms of action. And that being in this case, GMCSF, which is a white blood cell extender. It's commonly used in patients after they've had radiation or chemotherapy to restore their white blood cell populations in their body. And combining that with real license, which we've done a preliminary pediatric cancer study and it's been shown to be very safe in, in patients. I mean, they get a mild fever and they feel tired for a day or two is, is really the only side effects. And combining those two together to treat patients and the hope is that we'll be able to have a treatment that is very benign and also can have the effects that we want, which is to treat their cancer and just bypass all the kind of heartbreaking decisions to treat or not to treat with the current standards of care. You used a term called reolysin, which is a proprietary term with regard to oncolytics. And again, let's talk about what a reovirus is and what reolysin is so that our listeners new to the program can understand what's unique about oncolytics biotech and the technology. Well, the virus that we're using, its technical name is reovirus. And there's three strains of it. And we're using the third strain. So we're using reovirus type three. And it's a very commonly 
found in the environment type of virus. Most people by age five have some evidence of being exposed to the virus. Almost all adults have been exposed to the virus. It's part of a growing number of viruses that, yes, they're viruses, but they actually don't cause diseases. Certainly people in the field think that probably most viruses don't cause, you know, the ones that we study, of course, are the ones that cause disease, and that's rightfully so. So you've got this relatively safe or safe virus that's present in the environment, and it just happens to actually only grow in cells that have genetic defects that are linked to cancer cell populations. And so you just have this very elegant solution handed to us by nature for a potential problem, which being this case being cancer. Of course, taking it from being present in the environment and taking it all the way through all the safety and efficacy and all the development, how do you make it kind of issues has been what Oncolytics has been doing since its inception. But it's a very interesting area in that all the viruses that are being tested in oncology, and there's quite a few of them now, all have many of the same elements. They're quite safe. They're quite targeted. They use different mechanisms of action than traditional older therapies. And in this case, with regard to children, it's a technology that would be employed after other curative therapies have been employed and deemed ineffective? Not necessarily. We've focused all our development work at various levels in the treatment lifetime on a patient. And so we've treated what we call first-line patients before with, you know, it's the first time they've been diagnosed and we think there's a home of for this particular product in that patient population. And we've also treated you know, second, third, fourth, and fifth lines, so depending on how many cycles or types of treatments that people have failed on. And so it, it fits in well with existing therapies. Realison adds activity to existing therapies. It's what we call synergistic with radiation, which means that it's not a one plus one equal two kind of effect. It's a more one plus one equal much greater than two effect. It's synergistic with most existing chemotherapies. And we're working on looking at some of the new agents, you know, the new biologics that are coming out. And it appears to work well with those as well. So we think it has a home, if you want to think of that, with pretty much any line of therapy and with pretty much any type of existing therapy. When the clinical trials start involving pediatric brain cancer, brain tumors to be specific, how are you going to inform the population of the public that's afflicted that you're available to do these trials? The best place for any patient to find out about any clinical trial that's running in the United States is to go to uh, clintrials.gov, so www.clintrials.gov, where there's a complete listing of most, or in some cases all, depending on the time of the year, clinical trials that are undergoing in the United States. And all I have to do is type in the keyword Realison, and it'll give an entire list of clinical studies that are currently enrolling in the United States. And this particular study is up on ClinTrials. It's got the contact information. People can just contact the site directly to see if they can get onto a clinical study. I imagine when you're dealing with potentially terminal patients and adults, the criterion for clinical trial is not as stringent as it is with children. There's a lot more hoops you've got to jump through with regard to your company in these trials to involve children in this procedure, correct? Yeah, children are treated with extra special care in clinical trials in, in cancer for the reasons that we've already talked about. There's another reason layered on top of that is that, I mean, children aren't legally able to give informed consent themselves. I mean, it's hard to sit down with a five-year-old and say, you know, I'd like to stick you on this experimental therapy and try to explain it to them and have them make a, a reasoned decision upon that. So you're actually relying on the parent and so there's a 
great deal of sensitivity in the system of the ears. The people you're talking to are the ones that are most upset by the situation, which is the parents. And the children are actually typically far more stoic and far more accepting of the situation than the parents are. And so there's a lot of sensitivity in the system, both for the safety of the children and for the enrollment process. Adults are capable of, of managing their own affairs. And honestly, they're a lot more durable to all the treatments that people propose to stick them on on these clinical studies. It is a, just an easier process for those two reasons. Brad, what can we look forward to during the next six to 12 months with regard to rolling out additional trials or technology? What can we say to potential shareholders? Well, we're really entering a really, I think, exciting stage of development with this particular product. And there's really two paths that we're looking at. One, I would expect in the very near future, people will be hearing about what our final first choices for registration studies. So the last step to get the product approved kind of studies will be that we're hoping to do that in this quarter or early next quarter. And then those are very important milestones for people to be aware of. In behind that, you're going to be seeing us announcing a number of new study initiatives like the one we did this week, which is looking particularly at the immune system, sort of two prongs of attack on that. One is looking at boosting the immune system, which is this GMCSF, a real license combination. And we're planning on doing that in an adult population as well as the announced pediatric indication. And on the other side, looking at our initial studies, looking at checkpoint inhibitors, which is the current rage in oncology. And these drugs actually remove the blinders, if you want to think of that way, from your immune system. Sometimes your immune system is blinded to a tumor, so it can't actually see it. And if it could see it, it can get rid of it. And these new drugs, which all in the class called checkpoint inhibitors, actually remove that blinding, if you want to think of it that way, and allow the immune system to see it. In relation to your research, which attacks the cancers once they're in place, what kind of preventative techniques technology have you discovered along the way? Is that something the company is going to get involved with, especially when it relates to something like pediatric brain cancer? Well, the whole area of what people would normally think of as prophylactic therapy, treating people before they have a disease, absolutely intriguing. And we have spent quite a bit of time thinking about that. I mean, if you have an agent that's safe, and that's the key thing, then you can think about treating people before they have an external manifestation of the disease. When they have a few cancer cells floating around someplace, it would be the ideal time to treat a patient. And so if an agent's safe, like real life, then you start thinking about being able to use it as a prophylactic agent. And we've done that in animals in particular. So the question is, how do you translate that into human use? And that is where the problem comes with prophylactic. How do you prove you're preventing cancer in very large patient populations? And that's just a very daunting task for any company, much less the company the size of Oncolytics, which is a fairly small company. But I think it's possible. And I think there's agents like Realison should be able to be used in that indication. But it's just getting over the developmental hurdle about how do you actually prove it. Well, Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Well, thank you very much. Hope you have a good day. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, the CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Find a link to their website on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire program on iTunes. Getting hungry? Eat knowledge. Find it at ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Ross Orr, President of Backtech Environmental, Trading on the OTC is BCCEF, and on the CSE, the Canadian Stock Exchange, as BAC. Backtech is a pioneering environmental technology company that has developed and commercialized proprietary technology to remediate highly toxic tailing areas 
resulting from abandoned mining operations. Ross, welcome back to the program. If you don't mind, give our audience a brief overview of your company. Bioleaching's been around since the mid-80s. First perfected by Goldfields of South Africa, a big company that everybody's aware of. Secondly, by Backtech. The first plant that we built was in 1994, and we've built three plants subsequent to that. In essence, what we do is use bacteria to oxidize sulfides, particularly arsenopyrate, which is arsenic sulfide, into a form where the gold is readily recoverable, where it wouldn't be using conventional cyanide techniques. Effectively, the bacteria, their job in these large vats is to attack the sulfides, break them down, which allows them for conventional recovery of gold and silver, and copper for that matter. Hence the expression that you've coined on your website, our bugs eat rocks. It's the simplest way to get people to stop at a booth at a show and ask you, what does that mean? It's not a topic that's well known to people, and it takes time to sit down and educate people about what it is we actually do. I think the fact that we have split the company in half to pursue environmental remediation with bioleaching, we're the only people that do that. I mean, Goldfields is more focused on using their technology to produce gold ounces, and the plants that they built tend to be a lot larger than the ones that we've built. The largest one we have is about 200 tons a day of concentrate, keeping in mind that a concentrate is a percentage of the actual rock that goes through a mine. We're throwing out a word called artisanal mine. What exactly is that and why is it so bad? Artisanal mining, especially since the advent of the increase in the gold price several years ago up into the thousands of dollars per ounce arena, has led to an absolute war on the environment in countries like Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Nicaragua, Congo, Philippines, etc. What it is, is basically your mom and pop out there with a pick and a shovel digging a hole in the ground and some of these holes go as deep as 200 feet in the ground. It's very dangerous mining. Many people are killed through rock collapses, but effectively they scratch out their living by delivering rock to a mineral processor in the various countries for cents on the dollar, really, to stay alive. But they don't pay a lot of attention to the environment and one of the worst things they do is they use mercury to amalgamate gold and silver from the rock. The recoveries are anywhere from 5% to maybe 50%, depending on what the nature of the ore is. But what they don't get, they throw into the rivers, they throw over their shoulder. I mean, it, there is no environmental plan for the refuse that they generate. So I imagine that this adversely affects this artisanal mining, agriculture, farming, drinking water, things of that nature. Oh, especially uh, rivers. I heard the other day that Peru is looking at sewage Ecuador for some ridiculous number of $60 billion because the rivers that are flowing out of southern Ecuador into Peru are dead. I mean, they've killed all the fish, the wildlife, and of course that water is used for agricultural purposes as you pointed out, so you're spraying mercury onto farmers' fields. It can't be good for anybody in the long run. I mean, it's, it's terrible. Now, I came across an article related to this by a person called Marcelo Vega from the University of British Columbia who has evidently spent the last 10 years attempting to solve the problem in Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru of the elimination of mercury by artisanal miners for the recovery of gold and silver. I've actually spoken with Dr. Vega about this problem and what he's trying to do is convince the masses that it it makes more sense to deliver their rock to a conventional gravity flotation circuit where the sulfides can be floated and then separated without the use of mercury. What they do now, of course, is they use the mercury to amalgamate the gold. Then they deliver the end product to the conventional processor in the area who tends to burn it, which effectively means you're now burning mercury and putting all sorts of hazardous gases into the environment as well. It's just a nightmare. The simple answer, of course, is just to use flotation to separate the gold-bearing sulfides from the rest of the rock, and then you can use your cyanide in a controlled environment so that you can destroy the cyanide when it's done. I don't know what the actual output is, but mercury and 
cyanide together is not a very nice thing to have. So what are you telling these local miners about using mercury? We're saying to them, look, don't use mercury. Just deliver us the rock. We'll crush it, grind it, float it, and then we'll pay you more money for your gold than you would get using your archaic or historic processes they use for recovering metal. It's some of the pictures and videos I've seen with Dr. Vega, it's like thousand-year-old technology. What makes you different, let's say, than the six or seven companies that are building processing plants in Peru for, I imagine, the same purpose? Well, again, there's two types of ore. There's oxide ores, which means the sulfides have already been oxidized, and therefore the gold silver is relatively free. They provide crushing and gold recovery for these small miners. When you get into the difficult ores, the arsenopyrites, which are refractory golds, you need an additional method to liberate the gold. Historically, they burned it. It was smelting. But of course, you're putting arsenic trioxide gas up the flue, and that's been shut down. So it's very hard to find places to process our cenopyrite. That's what we do. Every bioleach plant of the 20-odd there are in the world treats our cenopyrite. We produce what is called a ferric arsenate, which is after the bacteria have destroyed or oxidized the sulfides, the arsenic and the iron band together and drop out as a U.S. EPA-approved landfillable. Not that we would ever do that, but it just proves the point that it's a final benign form of arsenic. Is this still an underreported issue worldwide? As many times as you've been on this program throughout the last five or ten years or so, you would think that it's a well-known issue. I think environmentalists know about it. Certainly folks living in the countries we've discussed know about it. It would seem that the IFC or the World Bank would be interested in, in funding something like this, for instance. Just recently, as recent as two weeks ago, the Canadian government gave $8 million to a group out of Victoria, BC called, I think it's the Artisanal Gold Council or something. It's an NGO. You know, they're basically out there trying to spread the word that this has to stop, but it is also involves an education process for these miners. They don't trust us, and for probably just reasons. They're getting, in some cases, with the arsenopyrate they're mining, they're getting as little as five cents on the dollar. We can pay them 25 cents on the dollar, make their lives a lot better, reduce the amount of mercury that's being used in the process and still make a great buck for ourselves. That's what it's all about at the end of the day. We need to maximize our profits as a public company. How do you make money from these tailings? So what we would do in the case of Peru and southern Ecuador, we would probably build a flotation plant, a 100 ton per day flotation plant. Capital cost one and a half to two million dollars. We would then offer the local miners better prices than what they're getting now for the material that they produce. And when I say better, I mean sometimes up to five times as much as they're getting now. We have to bridge that trust. We have to prove to them that they're going to be doing a lot better dealing with us than they will be trying to do it on their own. That 100 tons of rock that they deliver on a daily basis, when you consider their are hundreds of thousands of these people doing this mining in both countries. That produces about 20 tons of concentrate. The concentrate would grade probably minimum five ounces of gold per ton. So you've got rock that's now worth $6,000 a ton being shipped west to the coast near Talara, where we'd like to build a uh, bioleach facility. And at 20 tons a day, the capital for that's probably in the seven to $8 million range. So for $10 million, we're up and running and we're producing on average about 35,000 ounces a year. And our margins are quite fast. Well, Ross, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program. Thanks, Ellis. I've been speaking today with Ross Orr, the president of Backtech Environmental, trading on the Canadian Stock Exchange with the CSE as BAC and on the OTC as BCCEF. Find Backtech's logo on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and click through to their website. You can download the Ellis Report in its entirety on iTunes. Go to the website right now. 
ellismartinreport.com. The following segment is sponsored by Wellgreen Platinum, trading in the U.S. as WGPLF and on the TSX as WG. Located in the Yukon Territory, Canada, the Wellgreen Project has the potential to become one of the world's largest and lowest-cost open-pit producers of platinum group metals and nickel. Find them on the web at wellgreenplatinum.com. David Morgan is an expert on silver, gold, and precious metals investments. He's a world-renowned lecturer appearing on CNBC and the Fox Business Channel. He's an author having penned Get the Skinny on Silver Investing. And Mr. Morgan is a regular contributor and friend of the Ellis Martin Report. David, welcome back to the program. Ellis, it's great to be back. Why all the secrecy around legislation in this country now aren't we a democracy why is congress so compliant now with everything that's been passed or will be passed what happened to national debate is that just gone out of the window did we wake up one day and find ourselves not in the same country we were born into well it's been gradual but yeah we are definitely in a different country than you know when i was born and what i saw as a young man and uh, a lot of it probably has changed to the uh, idea that people see it very plainly and clearly now whether the process was always this way or not could be debated. I mean, a lot of people can argue that do, you know, independent research that the voting situation is not what it seems and these presidents are selected, not elected, and there's a lot to that. I don't really want to go down that because I'm not that studied in it, but I want to come back on your point, which means there is so much going on. It reminds me of the end of the Roman Empire, where at the beginning, the republic, and that's what we really are, is a constitutional republic. We're not a democracy. A democracy is mob rule, but that's what people think we have and the republic was set up and the senators really did represent the people of rome and of course near the end all they cared about was what was left and what the spoils were that they could have personally and damn the people and that's pretty much what we're seeing now uh, from the congress critters and from the senate there's a few exceptions here and there but the whole system is not working the way it was designed to work that's a fact well the roman empire and then the british empire and i guess any empire collapsed into a bunch of i guess feudal nation states after a while and then nation states are we headed to loosely connected republics again in the future of our world very great question i really have thought about it quite a bit and no one has an answer i mean there's so many possibilities i think it'll be a combination of a lot of different things but i think as central power actually degrades the more they want to control everything and everyone and certainly have the technology to do so but they'll one get a lot of pushback two if any of these non sequiturs come in any of these black swans you may see disruptions maybe in a state like a california with the water situation you might see it in a country you might see it in two countries and there's a lot of variables and with so many variables what the equation will equal at the end is extremely difficult to determine I think you'll find there'll be areas with self-organizing communities. For an example, if you have a banking crisis in a certain country and basically it isn't resurrected right away or some people just opt out and, and do not turn in their old currency for the new or whatever, will organize themselves. So there'll be communities that are of like thinkers in certain areas. So that's one possibility. The other one is, of course, if the welfare status of whatever, be it the U.S. or be it other uh, nation states, that have equal systems, meaning that there's people that are on the entitlement 
situation and it doesn't buy what they need or it stops or it's intermittent or any of those possibilities, then you'll see pushback in the form of violence. And again, that could take place regardless. I mean, if you go back to the Arab Spring, everyone says it was, oh, they want democracy, which is absolute, total, complete nonsense. That was because they were, food costs were so high. That's what they were in the streets about. And that's direction is going. I mean, a lot of people aren't talking about this avian flu, which is this bird flu, which is killing huge numbers of the chicken population in the United States. Look it up. Google it. Don't take my word for it. Check it out. And so what that does is it affects two things. It affects chicken as a meat source and as an egg source. And eggs are still the, about the lowest cost protein source you can get. And chicken is cheaper than beef, etc. So this is a big concern and you're not hearing much about it at all in the mainstream. So there's all kinds of issues that are coming together. And I do think that there will be disruptions. And I think the more or most important point, the more the powers that be try to gain more and more power, the less likely it is to occur. I do think that they're losing a grip, and the whole idea is a very simple one, and it's one that most people say can't happen, won't happen, and that's that governments fail, and governments do fail. In fact, you outlined the Byzantine, the Mesopotamian, the Roman, the British, I mean, all empires have come and gone. In fact, digressing further, in the movie that I was in, the fourhorsemanfilm.org, if you type that into Google, the fourhorsemanfilm.org, you'll go and be able to watch the movie for free now. I'm one of the people that were interviewed in the movie. It's about empire, and that's a great movie to watch, to understand where we are, and to understand that they all fail. And also, if you have people that are kind of on the fence or don't believe any of this stuff, it's a good film for them to watch. It's a very well-made film. I know Dominic Fritz in fact, I met him early on in one of my first trips to London, and honestly, Ellis, Dominic was a non-believer in honest money, and he was pretty much a statist and not a libertarian at all. And I'm not saying it was just me, but I think that the interview he did with me got him to think. He's, he was open-minded enough to say, wow, this kind of makes sense. I, so... I was one of his first interviews, and he has written a book, Life After the State. I mean, he's become a complete libertarian. Not that everyone has to agree with my view or anything else. It's just that, you know, it was interesting to know him and see him, you know, do the voice of this movie I just mentioned and write books and see his change and see where his philosophy has gone. And you know, I really like the guy for a lot of reasons and not because he became a libertarian, but it's just interesting that the power of an idea is very, very powerful. So the power of the idea that we should be free, we want to be free, we don't want to be dictated to, we don't want to be be controlled and listened on and all that for the vast majority. There's people out there that have been brought up in this environment that think, what's the big deal? I'm nothing to hide. Let them listen to all my conversation. Let them read all my texts. Let them look at every purchase I make, et cetera, et cetera. Well, no, I'm not going to tell anybody how to live their life, but that's not the life I want. I was on uh, silver-investor.com, themorganreport.com, and I was looking at your blog, and you posted something by uh, a gentleman named Christopher Mullen. According to his article, he was speaking about economic collapses are usually predicted two to three years in advance. They may not happen right away, but they eventually do. They usually happen about three years out, and we're headed toward that at this time. Would you mind further explaining what is on your blog on silver-investor.com? Well, first of all, I reemphasize to read the article and make up your own mind, but yes, in fact, the movie goes through this as well, how you cycle through different phases, like the age of pioneers, and there's this expansion and happiness, and uh, they don't put it in these terms, but working and, and discovering and getting along and then it, that kind of burns out and you go into the next phase and what Chris is saying in this article is I can't really reiterate much better what you said I mean we're at a point in time where the collapse hasn't occurred yet depending on how you measure it I mean I would be of the school that the collapse
collapse took place in 2008, and it was quote-unquote fixed, but it really hasn't been fixed, and here we are seven years later, and we are in a situation that's only gotten worse. Everything that was wrong in 2008 has been increased other than the uh, real estate situation is not at the bubble but the debt bubble has expanded. And the biggest debt bubble and the one that will take down a government is the bond market. And that's the biggest bubble of all. The biggest bond market bubble is the United States market, the U.S. bond market. And we're already seeing interest rates start to move up, which means bond prices go down. And that will be the main reason you won't see a hyperinflation, in my view, is the reason that there's so much money in bonds, it dwarfs the equity market so that you can take the whole stock market and fit it into the bond market several times because the debt markets are just humongous. Not only government debt, which is the, the bonds, and you know the perception here is just, you know this is going right back to the matrix. I mean, the idea being that a bond is the most secure investment that you can have. It's like bonds are better than gold. A lot of people believe that, that the U.S. bond is sacrosanct. That is the absolute safest place to put your money. And that is absolutely the most upside down, illogical lie in the universe. And here's why. The government that issues the bond will tell you that's based on the full faith and credit of the fill in the blank united states spain greece whatever look at greece they can't pay their debt and they don't have bonds but the point is they can't pay their debt and the u.s bond market can't pay their debt either so it's on the full faith and credit means it's the ability to extract everything out of their citizens and squeeze them to death in order to pay the debt for whoever holds the debt. Say, well, we owe it to ourselves. That's not true either. China owns a great deal of the debt. There's foreign nationals or other governments. And there are some people in the United States that own government debt. And, and you could say, yes, they owe it to themselves. In other words, our Americans that bought American debt. But if you took everybody's ability to pay in the United States, in other words, took 100% of their income every year and let them starve, you know, you just basically just took their lives more or less, I'm using this as a metaphor, would not be able to take care of the debt burden that already exists. So the government doesn't produce anything to pay the debt back. They rely on their citizens to pay it back. So the full faith and credit means the ability of all your neighbors to come up with $3 million instantly to pay that debt back. Now, the debt isn't going to be called due instantly, right? I mean, no one that holds a bond is all going to go to the window and say, I want cash for this debt. I want to cash it in. They're not going to rush the window at one time. However, it doesn't have to happen that way. In fact, it won't happen that way. What could happen, and most likely will happen, is that enough of it will be cashed out where there's sort of a run on the bank. There'll be China that wants to cash out so much of the U.S. debt, Russia, maybe Japan, and all of a sudden, the interest rates start to go up and up and up because they have to give a higher interest rate in order to keep the system alive. And when that's the case, it kind of accelerates on itself. And the bond markets hold the key to the whole thing. And there's been no bond market, there's been no government-issued currency, no government-issued debt that has stood the test of time. But, you know, gold coin worked in the Roman Empire and it works today. I mean, that's my point. So you want to get really truthful, really honest, really sincere, really look objectively and tell the truth. What you'll find is that gold and silver are the money that last eons. And there isn't any government that lasts eons. Again, going back to that movie I was in. So we are in a precarious situation. Chris did a good job of outlining it. Take a look at the article and think for yourself. Look at where you think we are. And what I like to say is I don't want to pound the table saying, you know, buy gold, buy silver. That's all you've got to do because there's a lot, it's a lot more complicated than that. I think everyone should own some. 
I think 10% is probably enough for most people. And the 10% is that, is there a 10% chance that in the rest of your lifetime, there'll be such economic uncertainty that you'll be glad that you had the money of last resort? If the answer is yes, I think there's a possibility of 20%, and maybe you could go to a 20% holding. But if you think it's unlikely, maybe go to 5% holdings. But I'm not saying 100%. Will this happen? It's inevitable that it will. The time frame is always difficult to get. I truly think that we're probably within three years. Again, look at Chris's article and you can determine for yourself. And once you get the initial investment, I think you can really just kind of, you know, try to relax. I mean, these are very interesting times, but just go about your life. I mean, you don't need to focus your whole life on finances. Finances are part of your life, but they're not total. I mean, people like me, that's my livelihood. So of course I spend more time there, but the average person doesn't need to. Well, if you want to collect anything and people have many different hobbies and collections, why not collect something you may be able to use as barter someday, silver or gold, correct? Absolutely. The Yellow Smart Report is sponsored by Wellgreen Platinum. Wellgreen Platinum is a Canadian mining exploration and development company focused on the active advancement of its 100% owned Wellgreen PGM and nickel project toward production. A 2015 economic assessment shows the Wellgreen project located in the Canadian Yukon to be potentially the second largest PGM producer outside Southern Africa and Russia, with average annual production of over 200,000 ounces platinum, palladium, and gold, along with 128 billion pounds of nickel and copper from just 34% of the pit-constrained resource, making it possibly one of the largest in the world. Estimates show that once in production with assets near or at the surface, this low-cost producer may generate cash flow exceeding as much as $330 million per year. Situated along a major highway in a mining-friendly jurisdiction with an active market for PGMs and nickel, and with a strong management team, Wellgreen is certainly to be considered a candidate for your portfolio. Find them on the web at wellgreenplatinum.com. David, tell us about the Morgan Report. I will. Uh, one thing that I don't know if I've ever talked about in public is once you become a paid member of the Morgan Report, they're right at the top of the members-only section. There's something that is called how to use the Morgan Report because that's the most important thing, which means that's the first thing you should read, and you should read it a second time because it outlines why we structure the portfolio the way we do. It talks about your age and how much gold or silver you should own, and it absolutely prevents you from making big mistakes because I made big mistakes investing in the junior mining stocks when I was quite young and I learned the lesson very well. I didn't want anyone that relied on my work and it's just not me as you know Ellis it's me and two other analysts and we have a staff so it will prevent you from making big mistakes I and mean, we believe in big money goes into big companies and medium and medium and when you speculate that's exactly what it is and it outlines exactly how to do it. It outlines how to put a stop loss in. It explains why a stop loss on a big company is tighter than a stop loss on a speculative company. It explains when you speculate how you do it to prevent taking a big loss because you spread out your bets. And all this is outlined. And the reason I'm going through this is one, is extremely important for everybody that has money at risk. And two, it's disheartening to me because I do care about others. I certainly care about people in general, but especially our members. And occasionally we'll get an email or a phone call or whatever that someone has bought XYZ mining and put in X amount. And I say, that must mean you have 100X in your mining portfolio. And well, no. 
well, did you read, you know, how to use the Morgan Report? Well, yeah, I think I did or whatever. Anyway, the point is that a lot of people, unfortunately, will overload on a speculative situation. Now, honestly, if you put a ton of money in the right speculation and it goes up 30-fold, you're going to be one happy camper. I mean, I won't deny that, but that's not the way to do it. If you get lucky and you're the one out of 4,000 and hits a home run, the odds are probably worse than that, but that's what the statistics say, then you're the smartest guy that ever walked. But on the other hand, most people are going to lose way too much. So again, I'm really emphasizing this, Ellis, because how to use the Morgan Report. I mean, I'd put everything I possibly could into that, and I almost would love to make it a requirement. You signed up. You're now a member. You see the website. Most feedback we get is usually like, oh, wow, I had no idea you guys had this kind of material available to me for this price. I mean, there's so many special reports and all this stuff that comes with it. But the key is how to use it and how to use it properly. It is very difficult in my position to see someone make a, a big error when we specifically say that is not the way to do it. There are certain aspects of investing that really need to be integrated into the practice. It's not just theory. I mean, I've had guys that I wouldn't sell them the report because all they wanted was well, like, what was my latest speculation? And I said, yeah, that's not what, what I'm about. It's not what the report's about. It's not going to benefit you or me. I mean, if it hits, then you're going to take credit for it. The thing about this business, this isn't true of everybody. In fact, most people are just really, really great. But there's always a small percentage that no matter what we do on our research base, oh, they would have found that stock on their own anyway. They didn't need our help. But the ones that are losers, they never would have known about it without us. So, you know, it swings both ways. It's like being a quarterback. When you're hot, you get more credit than you deserve. And when you're cold, you get more criticism than you deserve. And the message here, listening audience, is get an education. Go to the website, themorganreport.com or same website, silver-investor.com. We've been speaking with David Morgan, the silver guru. David, thanks so much for joining us today in the program. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Ellis. I've been speaking with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. The preceding segment is sponsored by Wellgreen Platinum. Trading in the U.S. is WGPLF, and on the TSX is WG. Located in the Yukon Territory, Canada, the Wellgreen Project has the potential to become one of the world's largest and lowest-cost open-pit producers of Platinum Group metals, and nickel. Find them on the web at wellgreenplatinum.com. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Dudley Baker of commonstockwarrants.com and his new endeavor, marijuanaspeculator.com. Dudley, welcome back to the program. Hey, great to be here, Ellis. No, I'm nearly getting an email a day or every other day, a lot of emails from marijuanaspeculator.com and their company picks. You're in the business of analyzing Public companies in the business of hemp or marijuana, cannabis, anything related to that industry. Tell me about your website, MarijuanaSpeculator.com, and the service that you provide. What we're doing now, we like to call this the Baker's Dozen. So my last name, Baker, obviously, and my son's involved with this project as well. Actually, he came up with the title, The Baker's Dozen. So what we've got is our 13 top picks in this sector. Right now, we have 12. Any investor just sits down one morning and says, okay, what 13 stocks am I going to buy today? We've taken our time here over the last several weeks, and we're actually 
putting together day by day what our 13 picks are. Right now we've got 12 and probably tomorrow or the next day we'll come out with our number 13 pick and then we'll have our initial portfolio together. And so yes, we're kind of exploring those stocks that are in the universe within the marijuana cannabis space. Right now there's, let's say conservatively, probably 280 companies trading in the marijuana cannabis space, U.S. and Canada combined. Part of our service also includes this whole master list, sortable in just about any way that you can imagine and definitely sortable based on price of the company, name of the company, symbol, market capitalization and such. So it's a little bit of a process and then we're narrowing it down. We know that we can't just recommend the universe. So 13 picks sounds really cool. We will be constantly monitoring these 13 picks. If we decide to drop one off, we will add another one to take its place. We will still be tracking that company and it will still be in our portfolio. But we're going to have our basically our hot stocks are going to be our the baker's dozen, the top 13. So it's a fun journey so far. So we're trying to do a good job here. So typically on this program, on the Ellis Martin Report, companies pay us for exposure. Public companies pay us for me to interview them in order that they have a chance to expose their company to potential new shareholders as part of their fiduciary duty to grow their shareholder base. Now, with regard to you, no company's paying you to cover them at all. You are recommending these companies as a pick as part of the Baker's Dozen based on the work that they're doing based as the potential to make money in the market. Is that correct? Correct. Right now, we're not taking any money. Right now, we don't have any banners or anything that companies are paying for. Now, some of this could change a little bit in the future. And if it does, it will be full disclosure of, you know, like if somebody was sponsoring this segment and and we were receiving some money, we would definitely be disclosing it. As we speak here today, this is not taking place. There is no monetary uh, funds coming to me. So with regard to your picks, have you invested in each one of these picks? Not each one, about half of them. Why don't you explain your strategy for investing in companies, whether it's cannabis-based companies or anything else for that matter. Why does Dudley Baker get involved with the stock? Well, number one, all of us, I think, that own a site like this, we're interested in investments, number one. And number two, it's pretty difficult not to invest some of your own money in in some of these companies. Basically, as you know, I come from the resource sector with my other site with Common Stock Warrants. And so I personally have much more money invested over on the resource side, which has not been all, all that kind to us over the last several years. Our new venture here with Mary want a speculator is opening new ideas and is really a more exciting arena for a lot of different investors and probably even more so uh, not necessarily young investors but more middle-aged investors it's just got more excitement more energy etc here in this space and so as I stumble on to some of these companies and in our research some beg me to want to invest in them I'm like every investor with limited resources. You say you can't buy them all. So it is somewhat subjective as to which ones that I personally come into at any time. We'll have those footnoted or flagged, those individual out of the Baker's dozen, the individual stocks that I actually own myself. I know that my nephew is an investor in this sector, and he's never touched a marijuana cigarette or anything related to it in his entire life. Would it be fair to say that you have many, many followers or at least people that are involved in this sector that 
don't smoke the weed, but they like the sector? I think that's a fair way to put it. I mean, there would be no assumption in my mind that just because an investor invested in this sector that they're a user. That's just a fair way to put it. I mean, this is just another sector, an investment sector, just like the resource sector, where you've got the opportunity to make some money. And this is my level of interest is from an investment standpoint, we created the service. And if we can all make some money, we'd like to think we're going to guide our subscribers into the money-making opportunities. And this is what we're looking to do. The difference is, you remember in the resource sector, I was pretty much more of a, of a longer-term investor. And that could mean anywhere from a year to three years. You know, you like to think we're in this thing for a while, not just to come in one day and out the next. My intent with Marijuana Speculator is not to be a day trader, but yet we do have a much shorter time horizon. I mean, we could be in a stock for a month. To, but let's say on average, I would be thinking three to six months. We could be out sooner than that. But it's going to be a faster situation. So I think we want to play the cycles. We're looking at charts. We're looking at support and resistance lines on our picks. And if we get some good percentage gains, we're going to be inclined to take them, log those gains into the book and look for the next opportunity. It's going to be, I think, a lot more exciting. That makes a little more time consumption for us because we're looking now for these opportunities and keeping our eye on it. This is going to be a lot more fun, I think, for the average investor. And again, it's all about making money. So whether it's a marijuana stock, whether that's a resource stock, whether that's a biotech company or whatever it is, I've got to believe the average investor, at the end of the day, you just want to make money. Does it really matter that much what sector that you're in? Well, that must be your interest here because while I've seen you have a drink or two every now and then when we get together, you have never touched marijuana in your entire life, have you? Uh, no. Again, that could change at any moment. <laughs> no, you're right. But there's no stigma attached. There's no whatever attached. We were just all you know, with different backgrounds. We're all different ages here. We're whatever. But yeah, I have a lot of friends that do. There's no problem. But definitely from an investment horizon, it is what it is. And we're here to make money in this particular sector. Which is strictly your interest. Now, you'd yeah. recommend the sector potentially for those that like to trade? Oh, I think so. I mean, so many of these companies, especially one of the other factors we're looking at is liquidity. So many of these companies, so many of these companies, so many of these companies are, let's just say, 10 cents and less. And some of them are damn near at a penny. Some are at five cents. But we've got great liquidity, meaning that for the investor, that's important. You can get in and out really easy. And these are really easy to trade. I would say with your normal broker, whether that's a, the E-Trades or Ameritrades of the world, they're doing these deals, low commissions, in and out, and it, yeah, just opportunity. We're trying to help the investors find these opportunities, what the bakers doesn't, and then you execute, assuming that you'd like to follow us and you like these picks. I don't assume that anybody's going to look at all 13 of ours and say, well, Dudley, we're going to follow you exactly. Everybody likes a list. So we give you what we deem as a hot list of 13 stocks. Maybe you only like a couple, maybe you like five, and you invest in those, and that's okay. Well, without recommending that any of our listeners invest in any of the companies right now that you are purveying on your website, marijuanaspeculator.com, why don't we talk about one 
pick one out of the baker's dozen that you like and tell us why. Well, one of the companies there in the L.A. area is called Vape Holdings, V-A-P-E. And vape is with the vaporizers. And their name is very apropos. Their symbol is very apropos to what they're doing. They're expanding. I think they're in Chatsworth, outside of L.A. It's been around before the whole boom and the hype here that started on January 1, 2014, with the legalization there in, in Colorado. So vape was around before that. They're expanding operations. My goodness, I think we came in with our recommendation roughly a week, two weeks ago at 40 cents. It's subsequently been up as high as 60 cents. I think it's maybe 56 right now. So we're about up a nice percentage in, say, two weeks. Again, not going to take that. You think, gosh, 30 plus percent, one time about 50 percent from when we actually uh, sent out the buy alert. Well, that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool, Dudley, yeah, so, but how long are you going to stay in there? Well, don't know. So basically, as with any investor, this came down, I think it bottomed right there at the 40 cents. I'd like to get more time. I'd like to get bigger percentage. Yeah, I'd love to see this back up to a dollar plus. I can't recall off the top of my head, but I think at one time in all the hoopla, this was uh, easily a $20 stock or more. And now we came in at 40 cents, which is basically the low. Well, that's pretty cool. We almost pegged the low here within a penny uh, recently. Again, for the average investor, if they were following us, now an average investor could say, well, Dudley, I'm out of here. I made 30% in a week, so I'm out of here. Well, that's cool. So everybody has to do their thing. And right now, I don't have a specific parameter here on BAPE that I'm looking for. It's just a matter of monitoring these and watching them every day and then making this decision in real time as to what we're going to do. But that's just a good example, and we think this has a lot of growth aspects to it. And of course, I think the whole philosophy with the, the investing in this space is that as the different states legalize, number one, just the medical marijuana, opportunities will present themselves. If and when any states legalize the recreational aspect, then more opportunities are going to come to the front. To find a company, say, like Vape, as example, that their products could be used then maybe much more freely over different state lines, etc., then that means serious growth opportunities. As a longer-term play, we're looking for things like this as well, as can these companies actually grow? Where if you're just a grower or cultivator in one specific state, you may be kind of limited as a company. Would we even want to follow a company like that that didn't have much bigger growth expectations as a company and for our shareholders? You might be doing good in one specific location, but we're looking at a bigger picture than that as well. You use the word growth or growing, but none of these companies that you're recommending are actually growing marijuana, are they? Got one grower in Canada that we've recommended, yes. And they're public. And they're public, yes. And how are they doing? Well, they're doing great. The one company, I'm going to keep this one kind of private, not divulge all the names here, but it's like this one, probably the biggest grower in Canada and has recently closed a private placement for $20 million. So what this means is this is serious money, guys. They're not small potatoes. They obviously savvy management. They know what they're doing, well-connected in the financial world, and they've raised 20 million bucks. This is pretty cool. So there's several growers in Canada and go through all the licensing procedures and yada, yada, yada. I thought to go with some of our much smaller companies, I needed one or two that were more stable 
out of our 13 picks. And this one grower, I think, is going to give us the stability. I mean, we're around the $2 range with this stock. This is not going to be maybe a 500 to 1,000% home run potential, but you can double or triple on this one, I think, in the coming months or, or year or so. And that's still a great return for a lot of investors. So I can wear a lot of different hats in analyzing some of these companies as far as the potential on each one, but with full awareness that we probably should not have all 13 of our companies sitting here at one penny and thinking that this is going to be a a great deal for all the investors. Some investors are going to be looking for more solid companies that they're more comfortable with. Some are not going to like the penny stocks or even some of them are even less than a penny, but we've got great liquidity. And if you can make money and turn the percentage gain, that's what it's all about. And I think that's what investors are looking for. And we're hoping to steer everybody in, in the right direction. And the big question is, how do we find out who this company is, Dudley? Oh, well, you're back to what we're doing here. MarijuanaSpeculator.com is our website. We basically give you an overview of what we're trying to do here. Just sign up for our services and that'll be cool. And to go with the Baker's Dozen, what we're again doing that we actually started with is the complete list of all of the companies that are trading in this space. And that complete list is again, roughly 280 to probably 300 companies as we speak. And so we try to keep this list up to date. It's all sortable. The average investor may think, my God, what do I do with this? It's just too much information, Dudley. And that's okay. And that's why we now have the Baker's Dozen. We've narrowed this list down for you. So if that's all you want, that's all you use. If you want the whole list, you just click the button and you're going to have the whole list. So it's pretty cool. Pretty cool what we put together. So love to have everybody join us, see what we've got going on. We're still in the process of developing some of the back end of the site, but we're up to 12 picks right now, but we'd love to have everybody on board with us. Well, Dudley, as always, it's a great pleasure speaking with you. I look forward to chatting with you in the very near future, and perhaps we'll visit some of these companies. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Great to be here, Ellis. Thanks. I've been speaking with Dudley Baker, the purveyor, the editor of MarijuanaSpeculator.com. Download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.